Welcome to the HSCT Warriors Podcast, bringing voice to the journeys of HSCT Warriors worldwide. I'm Dr. Jen Stansberry Koenig, or Zen Jen, and so grateful to share this story with you. As we continue to grow the HSCT Warrior community, illuminate the invisibilities of autoimmune disease, recognize the possibilities of a future free from disease progression, connect through our shared experiences, and advocate for an inclusive society. We're so glad you've joined us. Welcome, Jarko. It's so good to connect with you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, so I can't wait to learn more about your journey to HSCT from Canada to Russia. But why don't we start with your diagnosis story? Sure. So uh, I'm a 31-year-old guy living in Toronto. Uh, I was diagnosed in late 2017, so that's about four years ago. Uh, Actually, around this time, it was, I think, end of September, beginning of October, I was just finishing my path to become a lawyer. So uh, in Canada, you have to do four years of undergraduate uh, school. Uh, Then you have to do three years of law school, a year of articling. You write your bar exam. And I was just at that point where I had passed the bar exam. And uh, we threw like a party to celebrate. And, uh, you know, I invited a bunch of family. And and, uh, literally the next morning, the morning after that party, I... Woke up and uh, we, uh, me and my girlfriend were at her house and I had like a tingling in my feet, uh, like a little bit of numbness. And uh, it was always a little bit cold in her apartment. So I thought, oh, you know, it's, you know, it was cold at night or something like that. And we went out to get a coffee and it it wasn't going away. Usually once you get going, right, those kind of uh, body parts that fall asleep uh, uh, while you're in bed or while you're sleeping, that wakes back up. And, uh, I was like, well, that's strange. I didn't think too much about it. And the next day it it was still like that. And the next day it got a little bit worse. And then it started, uh, happening in my palms. That was the next place that started going numb. And I started getting a bit concerned. And so eventually I went to the emergency room. Um, I guess I should say that it, it, it had gotten, bad enough that like, you know, I was worried, but I wasn't, I didn't think it was anything like too serious about like, maybe there's a compressed nerve somewhere or something like that. And so I went to the hospital and now, um, in Canada we have, you know, universal healthcare, but uh, the issue is that not all the hospitals are funded to the same extent, which I didn't know. I just thought kind of that split equally or something like that, but it's not like that. And the hospital right near my house where I was living at the time, well, it was not a good hospital, unfortunately. And so I went there and I was basically turned away. Uh, I went into what? the ER. They, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, they, they looked at me, they evaluated me. And obviously, you know, I wasn't an emergency, emergency case. So you wait in the ER for a little while and that's all understandable. But they basically said, yeah, okay, we'll set you up with a neurologist in like three months. You know, and they gave me some some, you know, appointment for like far in the future. And I was just thinking like, you know, and I told them like, this is getting worse. Like it started in my feet. Now it's in my palms. And each day the numbness is getting worse. I'm losing more and more feeling. And they didn't seem to be concerned at all. They're like, oh, no, no, that's very common. It could be from a number of things. And I was like, okay, like that's a kind of a good sign. They're not too worried. They just sent me home. And then the next day it got even worse. And I went back to the ER again 
Yikes. And again, they sent me home. And then I remember the third time I went was the third day in a row. It was a Friday. And that day, I had um, I was in my laundry room, and it, it has one of those kind of collapsing sliding doors. And so I was closing the door, and I didn't realize that like a part of my hand was stuck between kind of the, uh, two parts of the door that kind of collapsed and then flattened out. Yeah, so ouch. basically, I pinched my hand there really hard, hard enough that it turned like, you know, like red and purple, but I didn't feel it at all. I only noticed when I went to, you know, walk away from the door and my hand was stuck in it. And I was oh like, my gosh. okay, like my hand is so numb that I didn't even feel this. And I, it would have been like really, really painful. And so I was like, okay, I have to go back to the hospital. And I went there and I was like, at this point, I'm like, you know, I don't know, you know, what the heck has happened to me? I was like, you know, uh, teary eyed and like basically pleading with them. Like, listen to me, like, this is getting worse. It's spreading to my body. Like somebody needs to see me. And finally, I got, you know, a, a, a good doctor. I uh, think they called him a, a, a medicine doctor or something. I thought, you know, aren't you all medicine doctors? Right. No, this is like, you know, inter- internal medicine. And so this guy actually started asking me different questions than all the other ER guys had. And after like a thorough kind of examination and stuff, he's like, okay, we're going to admit you. And I was like, oh, hallelujah, you know, what do you have to do to get admitted to the hospital here? And then uh, things got a little bit worse because uh, they wouldn't MRI me right away because it was Thanksgiving weekend in Canada. And so they're like, oh, there's there's nobody here to do the MRI. And I said, you know, if I had some emergency, someone's here to operate the MRI. Right. It's not important enough. But each day, like my body's getting more and more numb. And so it started in my feet and then my palms and it's creeping up my arms and it's creeping up my legs. And so... And you have no, and nobody can tell you what's going on. And so the first night in the hospital, I actually spent in the hallway because they didn't have a room for me. And it, it was really interesting because this one, I'll never forget him. Some random Polish doctor, older, older guy is walking by and, you know, he hadn't looked at me. He, he you know, how doctors are, they're just kind of curious, right? And they're just, they, he just sees me kind of like a young guy laying on the bed. There's nothing like obviously wrong with me. And he goes, you know, what are you in here for? And I tell him, like, oh, I got this numbness in my hands and feet, and it's kind of, you know, spreading. And he kind of, like, uh, I can't remember if he looked at my chart or whatever, and he just, like, spent, like, 10 seconds kind of thinking, and he's like, uh, MS? And I was like, oh, like, I hope not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and so I had to wait four days in the hospital where nobody would give me anything. They wouldn't do anything for me, and I had to wait till Tuesday oh. to get the MRI because apparently, you know, it's a long weekend and nobody's working. So finally they get the MRI. And, and during this time, I, you know, the neurologist came in and looked at me and she was convinced that there was nothing wrong with me and that this was a minor thing. And then I get the MRI on Monday and, and I was out like eating lunch with my family. Like they had come some like extended family had come to visit me. So I was outside the hospital grounds uh, on the picking table and uh, someone's like, Oh, they got your MRI results. So, um, you know, but literally running back inside and the neurologist is there and she, the look on her face was just like, I knew everything right away. You know, she uh, didn't have a good poker face, let's say. Mm. So I knew it was some, some bad news right away. And she's like, okay, we found some lesions like on your brain and on your spinal cord. And this one on your spinal cord is, is what's causing, you know, your numbness on your C-spine. And she said it could be a number of things, and one of them is MS, but they were still not totally sure it was MS because I didn't present with, like, muscle weakness and stuff. Mm. I was still had all my strength. I could, you know, I could walk fine until the numbness got really bad where I didn't have any feedback in my legs. 
So like my legs worked, I could kick, I could, you know, I was doing like body weight squats and all that stuff. Sure. And they kept doing, you know, the neurologist strength test, right. Where they see how strong, like your kind of muscle reaction is and all of that was fine, but, um, they still didn't think it was MS. And then finally, once, once I got out of the hospital after about two weeks and they gave me like a course of steroids and all of that, um, they gave me an MS specialist and the specialist said like, this is classic MS. Like, you know, uh, I think back then the, the definition was, you know, uh, you have to have two attacks, uh, separated by time and space, whatever the, you know, official kind of diagnosis criteria was. And I had had only one attack. It was, um, but he says, you know, this is MS. However, it was still technically, uh, what do they call it? Uh, when you have a single attack, they call it something else, clinically isolated syndrome, CIS. Mm. And some people get one attack and never anything again. Right. And so that was like kind of a hope that I was clinging to after this all happened. Of course. Um, because they're telling you, well, maybe it's just a one-time thing. And I thought, okay, you know, I didn't have, you know, I, I, I retained all of my kind of physical functions. I mean, so I guess I should just explain how far it went. It, it, the numbness got so bad, even after they started giving me steroids, it doesn't you know, work right away. It takes a long time for like your body to calm down. And, um, it was so bad at one point, like my, my hands were almost totally numb to the point where I had uh, trouble, like holding a fork, like mm. that kind of fine motor control right. I didn't have anymore. And my walking just started to get affected. I could walk, but I didn't feel the bottom of my feet at all. So I kind of had to like walk by, uh, you don't realize how many, how much like internal feedback you have for walking. Yes. Until and you so lose it. When you, and then when you lose it, you realize like, oh, like, you know, the kind of nervous system has calibrated this over like decades, really, right? Since you're a kid, since you're a baby, yeah. this whole system of feedback and w where the weight is on your foot and your toes and, and you're leaning forward and backwards. And so uh, it got to that point and then it started getting better. And luckily um, I pretty much recovered from that fully. I was left with like numbness and tingling and, you know, in my hands mostly and with temperature changes, like most MS patients, I would feel it, but I mainly recovered. That's so, so that's, great. That was my diagnosis, like I said, I think around October 2017 and uh, two weeks in the hospital. And then I went home and it was just kind of like, okay, let's see, you know, how much we're going to recover after that. Sure. And so did you connect with a neurologist who you felt better working with than the doctors in the hospital? So, yeah, I mean, the, in the hospital, the, the, the first neuro that refused, she wouldn't. She refused to believe that it was anything serious. And then even after it was, I wasn't really happy with her. So they gave me a different neuro and she was a really nice lady. And, um, she, she's like, I'm not an MS specialist, but obviously, you know, she's a neurologist so she knows a lot about it. And she said like, yeah, we're going to eventually send you to an MS specialist when, when we discharge you. So that will be your kind of the person for you. But she offered to continue following me. And I said, you know, I don't know if that's necessary. It's very kind, but uh, she kind of talked me through some of the things and then they gave me the specialist who was at a different hospital, uh, at one of the more major, um, MS clinics in Toronto, uh, which was at Sunnybrook, uh, for those people who are, you know, in Ontario, Canada or, or in the Toronto area. And, uh, yeah, I guess, um, just to explain a little bit what, what that neuro kind of his approach was, and I think it's the approach of most neuros, at least in the Western medical kind of, uh, setup it's pretty much deciding which drug you're going to be on, right? Mm. There's nothing really else that 
that they can do or that they're trained to do, right? It's just, you know, what's what kind of MS do you have? And here, you know, the kind of pharmaceutical options. So they put me on, uh, I always forget the trade name, but it's glutirimer uh, acetate. It's the the needles basically from, from Teva. And it's like one of these first line MS drugs. Copaxone, there it is, Copaxone. Sure. They put me on Copaxone and he says, you know, this doesn't really have any side effects and it will reduce the amount of attacks you have. And we're going to start you off with this because it looks like your MS isn't like super aggressive and hopefully this will be enough. You don't know. And, you know, right. I, I think my my mom went into research mode. She's she's a healthcare professional and I didn't really have the bravery to start researching too much because I knew like, you know, some MS patients, they end up, you know, very severely disabled and all this different stuff can happen to you. And I wasn't ready at that point to like dive into like actually learning about everything. So I went to the doctor, the doctor says, you know, take this drug. So you take the drug, you know, I was happy with, you know, the advice he was giving me and I, I believed him. He was sincere and he said, you know, if you were my brother, uh, I would tell you to take this drug with your kind of presenting symptoms and, you know, how your disease has, you know, um, appeared and all this stuff. So it was okay. And I was on Copaxone for about two years and, um, I recovered quite well, uh, after that. And, um, I managed to get a job. It wasn't a very good job, but it was a job as a lawyer. So my resume, you know, didn't have this big hole in it. Sure. And it was, it wasn't a, a very well-paying job, but it also wasn't like a full-time job either. So, you know, in those like three or four months after the first attack, I was not in any shape to work, but I felt so much pressure because, you know, I had a mountain of debt. Um, and you, and I'm sure many people, whoever's listening to this, um, and even family members of, of MS patients, like you, you don't, you feel this kind of, um, you don't want the disease to rob you of whatever you had planned right. before it came in and, you know, messed up your plans. So I thought like, no, like I was supposed to be working now. I was supposed to be starting my career and I'm going to, you know, do that. And so I had taken a job interview while I was in the hospital, the, the first stint. And I had gone to the interview and like my hands were completely numb. Mm. And I, I remember thinking I'm not like a nervous person at all. And I don't have some people have like a condition where their hands are very sweaty all the time. Or when yeah, they get yeah. nervous. And so for the first time in my life, I'm in a job interview or I'm in kind of bad environment where my hands are like really sweaty and I have to, you know, shake hands with the person that's meeting right. for this interview. And I think I thought like, you know, oh, they're gonna think I'm so nervous and like all this stuff. I got these clammy hands and I, I remember having to look at the doorknob before opening it because my hands were so numb that I didn't have that kind of like mm. feedback of feeling of like you just kind of touch the doorknob and you kind of know where it is and right. you can grab and turn it. I had to kind of visually feedback, you know, all this stuff. And I remember putting on a suit and my whole body was so numb that that like even just putting clothes on was really painful. Yeah. Yeah. That's how like much that sensation had gotten to me. And but it was just purely out of this kind of stubbornness, fear, uh, even anger. That I was like, no, like, I'm going to go to this job interview. I'm going to go, you know, see, you know, what they say to me because I want to line something up for when I'm out of the hospital and all this stuff. So anyway, somehow it went okay. And these people say, hey, you know what? We have a, you know, a job for you and uh, it's not full, full time, uh, but we'll basically throw you some work and you'll get paid based on the work that you do. So it wasn't even salary. So the, the long and the short of it is that I wasn't making much money, but I was still working as a lawyer and it was actually perfect because I couldn't work full time at sure. that point. 
And as I kind of recovered and kept working and I was learning and, you know, that, that you know, those people who hired me, they're, they're good people. Um, and, and it was just the perfect kind of job for me at that point. And then uh, maybe like four, four or five months later, I applied for like a big corporate job uh, at a big insurance company and they, they hired me. And then all of a sudden, like there I was, that was the kind of job that I'd been waiting for with like a real salary and kind of, you know, making some decent money and, you know, working full time. And my disease had been, you know, uh, I had recovered. So I have uh, relapsing remitting MS. And so after that first attack, I hadn't experienced anything in, you know, the six months afterwards. And there I was, at my, you know, big boy job, the first one, real, first real one. And um, everything was fine for about a year. I worked quite well. I think I had a good year. I had good, you know, reviews and I was doing well and I was excited and everything was kind of going well. And then somewhere along the lines, I had a, a relapse. And I didn't even notice that I had had one because I was so busy at work. Sure. But looking back, it was it was quite obvious. And I'm sure people can you know relate to this as well. You get so caught up in your life. And, and there's probably a bit of denial there as well, right? Indeed. You're like, oh, it's, it's fine. It's, right? It's fine. It's not a relapse. It's something else. But um, I had uh, nystagmus, which is like the shaking of the eyes. And that's uh, one of the typical MS symptoms as well. Mm. And I noticed when I would look at certain things like, you know, um, uh, the pattern of the crown molding on my, uh, in the bathroom or whatever, right? And I could, where there was this kind of line of the crown molding between the wall and, and, and the baseboard or whatever. And I could just notice it was shaking mm. just the tiniest bit. And I wasn't even sure if I was really seeing it or not. Right. But, but I just ignored it. I couldn't tell you why, even to this day, like, why didn't I, you know, think like, Oh, it's a new MS symptom. Like I should go talk to my doctor, but I didn't. And, and then I realized I had, uh, I, I was getting so tired at work that I was sleeping in my car during the lunch hour. So I'd go eat for 10 minutes. I would wolf down all my food. And then I'd go to my car and sleep. And if oh, it was wow. cold, I would just turn my car on and just leave the heat on, right? And I would just nap. And then I would go back and then, you know, work. And I thought, oh, I'm just working really hard. This is, you know, a tough, you know, uh, career. And I'm, I'm getting acclimated. But, like, you know, I was sleeping quite well during the night, seven, eight hours every night. I was taking care of myself. Um, like most MS patients, I think, after you get diagnosed, you suddenly sure. become a bit of a health freak, right? But you fatigue start drinking is real. Green. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually became my biggest disability was the fatigue. And um, that's that's what I've been struggling with for the last two years is really the fatigue. Um, I have some of these other symptoms still, the tingling, the numbness. Um, luckily, I didn't have too much muscle weakness. And, you know, I could always walk. And I, I don't have a great degree of physical disability in that way. And other than the first attack where kind of everything went numb, um, uh, I never did. But I was so unbelievably exhausted. And even so, after that one year at work, I, I, I started, my, my performance started suffering. And I just was going down a spiral and, and I started falling behind. And then I was doing just uh, working crazy hours just to keep my head above water. Mm. And, you know, in, in the law game, as in many other kind of high pressure environments, once you start having to tread water, you start to drown very quickly. Sure. It doesn't work. And, and eventually, you know, one of my managers said like, you know, like what's going on? Like, you know, you're not, you're not able to, to keep up with, you know, what's happening. And I kind of noticed that your performance is going down. And finally I, I couldn't even stay in denial myself because, you know, the manager had noticed. So 
I told her, I hadn't t- told anyone at work, right? And, um, I hadn't really told too many people in my life. I was in close, close friends and family. Sure. And she said, you know, well, let's, let's help you get back on track. Because, you know, when you're a lawyer, you got, you know, other people's money and other people's legal interests. So you can't really afford to falter. It's not like, you know, oh, the company loses a bit of money. It's, it's a little bit more right high, high stakes than that. And so she said, let's get you back on track. And then do you need to take time off? And at first I was kind of hesitant to do that, but I realized like, I think I do need to. And right around that time, when I had that meeting with her, I finally came to grips with like, oh, I have new symptoms, like something else is happening. And so I went to my doctor and he says, yeah, you've, you've had a relapse somewhere along the way. You have a new symptom. That means your disease is broken through. And like, now we have to figure out our options. Mm. And then that sent me, crashing down because if you remember they told me at the beginning this might be a one-time thing and you know hope can be a a great thing but it can also be a a killer yeah and when your hopes are are crushed like that that you hope that you know you're not going to have to deal with anything new and you realize that like okay like now you know there's no no more last ditch option that it that it that it might not come back. Like, you know, if you have MS, it's, it's, it's going to progress. Most likely it's going to continue progressing. Then you have to really deal with it. And that's when, you know, uh, mentally I took a, a big hit. Sure. And, so hard. Um, yeah, it's hard for everyone at any age, right. You know, I, I read a lot on you know the Facebook groups and stuff about people who, you know, they get diagnosed or they did, or, or rather maybe they didn't even get diagnosed for a long time, but they had some small symptoms. And then at like age 50, heavy disabilities come. And I always wondered like, what's harder living, you know, a chunk of your life and then dealing with it afterwards or having it younger. Like when it happened to me, I I really don't know. It is hard to know or say. So yeah, it's that snowflake, right? Like everyone's experience is so unique. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, obviously I, I can't speak for how it is for anyone else and nobody can speak for how it was for me either. But um, I think one thing that's probably common for people who are on the younger side, um, having been diagnosed is that, and I told this to one of my friends, cause I've been thinking about it for a long time when, when all this had happened to me, especially, you know, this part where, where my dog told me I had a relapse, we needed stronger drugs, we, you know, the disease is still breaking through, so we're not controlling it. Um, I realized that when it, when it happens to you when you're younger, there's a sense in which you have to deal with your mortality earlier than you might have. Right. And I think this is a kind of human condition thing that when, when you're younger, you don't think too much about it. I mean, we all think about death. It's something that everybody has to come to terms with. And, and even when you're, you know, when you're young, when you're a teenager, you think about it sometimes, but you're not really afraid of it because it seems so far away because we all assume we're going to live to that, you know, 87 or whatever the average you know, right. life expectancy is. And I think it's only as you start to creep up in age that, that that kind of question comes back to you thinking about it. And when you get diagnosed with MS at like age 27 and, you know, at that point, like I said, I just finished everything, all of my exams, all of the schooling. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, you got the world by the balls kind of feeling, right? For sure. And and then when it happens to you, you're suddenly forced to confront the fact that like you're in this body, and this body is decaying pretty much from age, you know, 22, it just started decaying. And 
you you start to realize like okay well now mine's maybe decaying faster than other people's and i might have a completely different set of challenges much earlier than anyone else have and all of this stuff and then you just think about all those bigger questions right about your mortality right. and about kind of life itself and you 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 go through this crazy maturing process very um very quickly maybe earlier than you might otherwise maybe there's you know i'm sure there's people who are mature from from a young age and it maybe didn't change them as much as it changed me but i felt like i aged in a good way uh much more in you know the last four years than i otherwise would have i feel like a lot of the bs that i might have gone through in my late 20s was cut out because sure uh you get put into that situation where suddenly your health is in question and um and all that kind of stuff and, and suddenly life gets a lot simpler it uh, distills into like the essential elements very quickly and very uh starkly right you, you don't, know anyone you're who's not as laid distracted in, yeah, and when you're when you're laying in that hospital bed and you know you can't hold a fork anymore, and you start to think of all the stupid stupid stuff that you were concerned with, you know, right? Uh, and you realize how how uh, how simple it really all is, and how how simple it is to figure out the important things in life. But unfortunately, it's only in those like really difficult situations that it becomes so crystallized and it becomes so clear to you. But when everything is good, you don't think that way, right? You're just thinking of all these lofty goals and I want this and I want that. And, oh, I'm stressed out about this. And this person said that. And, oh, work is, you know, this is happening at work and this is happening at home. And so um, when things are good, it's very easy to get caught up in, in, you know, all of life's things, events and distractions, big ones and little ones. Well, not just distractions, but, but, you know, things that are important, but that you might you know, stress more than more than is needed about them mm. or certain things that you might take for granted. Right. For sure. And that's a big one. Like the things that you take for granted, your health. I think everyone does that to an extent. It's Indeed. very difficult not to. Well, and it's so good that you came to those realizations, though, right? Because some people just continue down the path and, and can't see the importance of Absolutely. self-care. And, and it's hard to, sometimes to find that motivation to change so radically or to recognize such a radical shift is, is eminent. Absolutely. And I mean, I wasn't the healthiest person before my diagnosis. And so I've told this to many people and I'm very genuine about it. There's a lot of good that came out of getting MS for me personally. Mm. I know there's people out there who would never say something like that because you know, they might have had one attack and it completely robbed them of their mobility and, you know, their career. And there's people who have a much harder time than than I do. And so I I hesitate sometimes to, you know, in a conversation like this, I know that my disease has not been as aggressive um, or as limiting as as other people's. And so I know they have a a lot harder time. And so I recognize that it's easier for me to have maybe a better outlook on what's happening to me. But um, nonetheless, it's hard for everybody uh, in one way or the other. And I realized that, that that ultimately there are some good things that came out of it. And one of them is the kind of health consciousness um, that I developed afterwards. And, and not just about what's going to affect MS, but mental health and kind of approach to protecting your mental health and keeping a good state of mind. And all those things came about because when you're dealing with MS and you have these insidious symptoms like like this tiredness, like you don't even know whether it's real anymore. Right. right? And, and, yeah. And, am I tired? Am I just, have I just been eating too many sweets the last three days? Am I not going to, like, you don't know what's what anymore after a while. And you forget what you felt like before. Yeah. that's All you have is some kind of vague memories that, Oh, I used to work all day and I'd come home and all this stuff. And and the the 
most reliable kind of record that I have of how it was before was my girlfriend because she was with me before, you know, I got diagnosed before the first attack happened. So she's like, well, she has an idea of what kind of my day was like and what my energy levels were like and how it was before HSDT and how it's after and all this stuff. So um, there are some good things that came out of it. And I, and I try to focus on those. Obviously I'm not going to wish, you know, if I could have the opportunity, I wish it didn't happen, but I I don't think about that too much. I think about uh, more the positive things that came out of it and, and kind of be grateful that, like I, I was always saying, maybe um, I would have continued living um, in certain ways that I was being unhealthy, and maybe those would have continued had I not been diagnosed. Sure. And you know, uh, I cleaned up my diet a lot, and I, I took a lot of things more more seriously, and and this might have saved me from a worse fate. You know, you never know. So that's true. Uh, that's the way I choose to look at it, and I try to focus on on those things. That's very um, and positive. Yeah, it's a very positive outlook. So I think that's the only way that you can handle it is the positive outlook, right? Mm. Because the bitterness will eat you up and, and, and everybody has it, I think. Um, and, and, and it takes takes time to deal with those feelings of like anger, bitterness, resentment, the why me that every sick person asks when oh, something, yeah. you know, when they get the bad diagnosis, right? Everybody goes through that and uh, everybody has their past for dealing with it. And in the end, you realize like that victim mentality doesn't help you at all. Hopefully. It's just a necessary step to getting to the part where you just accept it and you just decide what is the what is the next best move that I can do and how do I help myself and how do I, you know, live my life to the fullest, which is a kind of stereotype cliche, but cliches are cliches because they're so common and because they actually do usually, or at least in some part, get to the truth of the matter, which is a very simple thing. Well, and help us explain our human experience. So I'm curious then how you came to find HSCT as an option. So yeah, um, referring back to kind of my little story, when I realized that I'd had, you know, a second and possibly a third relapse and I hadn't mm. even kind of consciously realized it. And then I talked to my neurologist and he said, okay, you know, you've had a relapse and, and now we want to put you on a stronger drug. So that's when I said, okay. Uh, and at that po- point, I went off work, tried to decompress from like a, a kind of stressful environment. And I threw myself into the research side of things. And so I would, you know, I looked at the drugs that he was recommending to me. I think some of them was like, uh, one of them was Mavenclad, uh, I think, which is like a kind of chemotherapy agent. And then there was Ocravis, which is a very popular one. And so he says, I would recommend one of these two. And uh, in my opinion, they are kind of s- similar efficacy. Um, but, you know, you can decide kind of, which one you want to do. And so I, I started diving into the to the studies, right, uh, into the medical journals to see kind of what the results were for some of these drugs and kind of, you know, I'm not a biologist, but I can read a study and see kind of, you know, sure. you can read, you know, there were this many participants and th- th- this percentage of them uh, experienced a relapse and this is the kind of, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I can get a basic understanding of them. And, and, and actually I encourage everyone to do that. Um, if you're grasped on English, is decent, you know, you don't have to understand every word in those studies. You can just right. learn to skim through at the beginning. They tell you the basics, how many you know participants there were and what they're doing and what they're measuring. And then you can skip to the bottom and see what the results were. And, and you can kind of get an idea at least a little bit about what's going on. And it makes the process a lot scarier when you actually start reading some of the science. And I started reading about all these drugs, the ones they were offering to me. And then actually I went... Uh, and then in the course of that research, I found out about, you know, 
stem cells, quote unquote stem cells. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize at that time that, that, that it was really, you know, chemotherapy was the, was the real part of the treatment. Sure. But, you know, they call it hematopoietic stem cell transplant. So you, and I think a lot of other people before they figure out what's going on, think, oh, stem cells somehow magically regenerate something, you know, in your body. Right. And it has to do with, you know, it has to do with the, you know, nervous system rather than with the immune system. And so I asked my neurologist, I said, oh, I've, I've heard of some kind of stem cell treatment for this, you know, like, you know, what's the story with that? And he just said, oh, yeah, he's like, you're, that's not for you. That's like for people who are really, really sick as a last resort. It's mm. very dangerous. I just said, oh, okay. You know, a kind of uh, appeal to authority, like he knows what he's talking about. And, and like I said, I do believe that he was genuine and, uh, you know, he wasn't hiding anything from me. He genuinely thought like, that's what it is. That's the criteria. Mm. And so... Then I, you know, that was an option. I'm looking into these drugs. I ask for a second opinion and I go to a different neurologist in a different hospital and I ask him, okay, you know, here's what, you know, my neuro thinks. Here's my history. What do you think? And he says, well, I think you should go on this other drug. You know, he, he, the first neuro said, you know, drug A and B. And then this guy said, well, I would use drug C or D and, and acknowledging the drug A and B are also fine. But in my experience, these are you know better. Mm. So I said, oh, like, and then I started to see the picture that, like, these neurons are just kind of giving you their experience based on, like, you know, what, what the pharmaceuticals can do for you. And I was even going to go for another referral to, like, the Mayo Clinic and pay out of pocket. And I thought, why would I waste this money? They're just going to do the same thing, right? These, these doctors are in the Western world. They're all trained in the same general way. And maybe there simply isn't anything else they can do. They have these drugs and for some people, this drug works, and for others, this one works, and that's it. And they just try to control your disease and slow it down. Right. And um, and then I asked him about the stem cells, and he said, uh, about the stem cell transplant, rather, and he said, yeah, he says, there's one doctor in Canada who does it. He's like, I've, you know, worked with him briefly, but I'll tell you right now that I can refer you, but he won't take you because his criteria for taking you is that you have to have failed multiple, you know, other mm-hmm. drug therapies that you have to have a high level of disability and all this stuff. And actually, sorry, I should say that my first neurologist actually did refer me in the end to that doctor in Ottawa who does the stem cell transplants mm-hmm. for Canada. He's right. the only guy who does it and it's approved. It's not experimental, but he takes probably a small amount of patients. And, um, and I told, you know, the second neuro, yes, you know, I know he already kind of rejected me, um, too healthy for, for it. But what do you think if I go overseas and do it? And yeah, I guess in the, in the, in the course of researching the other drugs, I found out about, um, doing it in, in Russia or Mexico were the two options that came up that were feasible for me. And, uh, he says, well, he's like, I can't speak to, you know, the, Kind of quality of medical care that you're going to get overseas. So he's like, I can't officially tell you go somewhere else uh, because in the medical world, a lot is about liability as well, right? So they, of course, they can't. They have to be careful what they say as your doctor because you know it's it's medical advice, right? And so he said, if it was me and I could, I would go get the stem cell transplant right away. That's what I would do. I would go for the most aggressive treatment possible, but. He's like, they won't take you in Ottawa, and I have no idea how good the hospital is in Mexico or in Russia or who these doctors are, and you have to be very careful. And I said, okay. And But he was the second neuro. He was the first guy who actually didn't just you know shut down that idea. Yeah, interesting. To know it's a terrible idea, and, and, and once you get into the kind of Facebook world of 
connecting with other people all around the world who are dealing with this. There's this, you know, recurring theme that I'm sure you've talked to many people mm. and, and I'm sure it's come up many times, right? Where the neuro is, no, no, that's not for you. And, you know, I'm not supporting that decision. And, and I've read lots of stories of people online saying that their neuros abandoned them, said like, I'm not, I'm not treating you anymore when you come back. And they had to get their family doctors to kind of do follow-up blood work for them right. and all this kind of crazy stuff. You know, uh, uh, this guy said, look, you know, it's up to you. I can't recommend that you do it. But if you do it and you come back, he's like, I'm behind you. And, you know, I'll set up whatever you need to set up, blood tests and MRIs. And, you know, I'll continue to kind of examine you. But as as people find out, once you learn about HSCT, the hope is that your neuro doesn't have too much to do when you come back, right? Right, he just right. Takes, takes the MRIs and tells you the good news that there's nothing new and, and hopefully that maybe some lesions are shrinking and and maybe does the physical exams, but that's about it. And then they just kind of see you once a year and then maybe even less often as time goes on. So uh, after that meeting with him, I went back and I really dug into, uh, I decided I didn't want to go to Mexico uh, because it wasn't in a hospital, right? It's in a clinic and Russia's program is in a hospital. And I just, for whatever reason, I thought that sounds safer to me. So I started emailing with Anastasia, who most uh, people will know at least through email and uh, maybe on Facebook as well, who's the administrator for for the Moscow HSCT program. A wonderful, wonderful girl who I spoke with for many months over email. Um, And it took me some time to really commit to doing HCT because you know you read like some people die and it's very rare but they do and there's complications and it's very difficult and it's very expensive and it's a huge commitment of you know everything everything yeah and, and you were having a relatively decent experience with managing your disease, exactly it sounds like yeah exactly and so I kept coming back to you know but I don't feel that bad right and, and, and I'm sure a lot of people come back to that right it's like yes. am I gonna do this like really hardcore aggressive toxic to your body therapy right I mean chemotherapy is toxic to your brain Indeed. and that's another thing that I read right like it, it shrinks your brain volume but so does MS MS a little bit slower but steadier mm-hmm. whereas you get that high dose of chemotherapy you do have you know uh, um some toxicity to your brain and you know it recovers but um you read about all this stuff and then it's like a you know you're weighing it in your head right what do i do and all this stuff and then the no so i was supposed to get i'm off work i'm talking to two neuros now i know about hsct uh I'm, i'm reading the studies and now the studies that i'm reading say the opposite of what i heard about the doctor in canada's criteria so his the, the doctor in Canada who's doing HSCT, his criteria is you have to be very disabled. You have to basically have no other options and nothing's mm. working for you. And then we'll take you. But then I'm reading the studies and, uh, on HSCT and there's studies from many different countries, all, all different continents, South America, North America, Europe. You know, there was trials and stuff like that and, and, and studies. And they're all saying the same thing, which is that people who are younger, who had not taken, you know, heavy immunosuppressants, who were not disabled, did the best. They had the longest periods of remission. They had the best recoveries. They had the lowest, you know, rates of comorbidities and all this stuff and other, you know, secondary um, diseases developing from HSCT. So I thought like, well, wait a minute, I'm actually the perfect candidate for this, right? At the time when I was looking at it, I was about 30 years old. And again, you know, I didn't have a high degree of uh, physical disability. I was really exhausted and I felt like my brain couldn't, you know, 
process like it used to. Um, and I thought, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really a good candidate for this. So why is it the opposite criteria in Canada? You know, I still don't have an answer to that question. I do want to say that the doctor in Canada who does HSCT, his name is Dr. Mark Friedman, and he's a great guy. I, I emailed him um, about, uh, I asked him what he's doing with his patients for vaccines, for the COVID vaccines. Mm. And that's a whole separate topic that we don't have to get into. But I just want to, I'm not trying to disparage him um, and or anything like that. That's just the criteria for his program. And he's the director of it, but he's a great guy. He, you know, responded to me. I wasn't even his patient. He gave me really detailed responses and very quickly as well. So nice. um, no flack on his name, but um, I'm starting to realize that, wait a minute, this is actually something that I'm, I'm well suited for kind of biologically. And the science is telling me that um, this is my best option. It's much, much stronger evidence for it than, you know, any of these pharmaceuticals. So right. then, right. Finally, I come to the decision, like, okay, I think it's time to be brave. And I think aggressive treatment is the way to go for something like MS. That was what I came to the decision in terms of my life and kind of all of the, you know, financial, emotional, mental, physical factors that go into a decision like that. And I decided to go. I emailed Anastasia and I had been kind of flip-flopping, right? I had emailed her and sent in an application and sent in all my medical documents and everything and uh, and then she's like, okay, we can take you like February. And then I didn't answer for like a week or two. And then she's like, oh, well, now it filled up. So now you have to wait till April. So when I had finally put my foot down and, and committed to it and figured out my funding and all of this stuff, and I emailed her and I said, okay, for sure now, I'd like to come as soon as possible. When do you have a date for me? And, you know, send me the information. How do I pay and all this stuff? And she says, okay, April uh, 2020. Oh, wow. And, and so... I said, okay, great. And um, I I went on vacation just before then. I went down to Florida and uh, I went with a couple friends and I said like, you know, whoever can come down to the beach for a week, let's go to the beach uh, because I'm not gonna see you guys for a while and I'm not gonna be able to leave the country for, for a while after this. And so we went down to Florida in March of 2020. Oh, wow. And of course, uh, there was also there was already kind of talks about you know the coronavirus mm -hmm. virus out of China out of Wuhan at the time, but at that point like nothing was closed, nothing was happening. There was no restrictions at all. Um, it was still a question of like, is this going to turn into something or is it not going to turn into something? And in those seven days that we spent in Florida, it went from like nah, nothing's going to happen to like there's no more toilet paper in Walmart <laughs> in those seven days. It, it, and it was really funny to see because the first day we went, you know, you show up there and okay, let's go buy some food and whatever. And it was fine. It was normal. And then on the seventh day, it's like, you know, it's like one of those movies where a deadly virus is breaking, right. <laughs> breaking out. So you were living it. Yeah. And uh, actually, I think like on the fourth or fifth day, right in the middle of that vacation, it, it dawned on me when they canceled like the NBA season and things were starting to shut down. And they were talking about shutting down flights. And it dawned on me, like, I'm not going next month. Oh, gosh. And I remember just, like, sitting in, in, in my bedroom in the place that we were staying. And I just started crying. And, I didn't, you know, I, I guess I had realized already at some point before then, but it just hit me in that moment that, like, oh, like, I don't get to go now. Mm. And after, like, going through all of this kind of deliberating and research and you know should I go shouldn't I go and and then I, I was supposed to go in February but I just slightly hesitated and then you know the slot was gone and now like oh, I can't go at all 
And it was a really uh, bitter pill to swallow yeah. in that moment. And we, we, we drove back home and we come back to, to Canada, uh, me and my friend. And it's like, nobody, there's nobody on the road. It's like this weird, like, you know, feeling. And then, you know, like many other countries around the world, we were in lockdown. And then, you know, for the next year, it was basically that COVID year, that strange year where like nobody left and all right. this change happened. And I was just in limbo where I was still off work. I was still, you know, just exhausted all the time. And then I am waiting to go get this treatment, but I didn't want to take any drugs because number one, they tell you to, to get off all the drugs. Right. Three or six months before you start, um, before you get admitted to the hospital. And everything that I was reading on the science was that, you know, people who didn't basically heavily suppress their immune systems, they had a better response to the treatment. And so I thought, oh, it would be much better if I just, if my body is just kind of clean of anything. But you're also scared, like, what happens if I have more relapses and if I start getting more disabled um, until it's time to go? And And you had no idea when that might be. Like, you know, it was the the early days of the virus. We didn't know anything about the virus. We were, you know, um, it was so early that, you know, they didn't, they wouldn't even tell us to wear masks yet, right? Because masks had sold out so quickly. So they were like, oh, wear masks, don't wear masks. And it was that those first few months were, were, were total, just like, you know, it was a circus. And so, um, yeah. And, uh, and then I had to wait about a year. And then finally I did get it uh, in April of this year, 2021. So oh, wow. I waited so a, a full year. year. Were you in contact with Anastasia that whole time? Yeah, so I like I, I that must have been a very very difficult time for them because you know I, I followed a couple of people who went like during during the pandemic and uh, they were having to fly to like Turkey and, and Norway because these are countries that kind of had some I guess uh, visa agreements with Russia and they were allowing planes from those countries to enter but you couldn't fly directly I think from Canada and from Western Europe and all this stuff right from some countries right. in Western Europe at least so there's all these funky rules what was happening and there was I think there was people there were people there who had started treatment and then they had to fly home and then they had to come back oh and my restart gosh. again like really difficult situations I was reading about online and but yeah, I was in contact with her and, you know, I just knew like, she doesn't know either. Right. She tells her what the authorities tell her, but what the authorities are telling is changing all the time because you know, the virus is a changing situation. So, um, I asked her at the beginning and I saw like, okay, nothing is going to happen for a while. So then I just, you know, I didn't really talk to her for some months and once in a while, you know, shoot her an email and just, you know, see what's happening. And, and then eventually, um, when it was, turning around or around winter. So I think October, November of 2020, um, they had figured out some kind of system for like, you know, the visas and that process had changed somewhat during COVID. And she said, yeah, I, um, you know, we're starting to take patients again. And I didn't want to go right away. I think they even offered me to come before the turn of the new year. And I thought, no, like the pandemic is supposed to get worse in the winter. Right. Uh, they're all projecting that the numbers can get bigger, so I I just sat tight, and uh, and then she offered me I was supposed to go in the summer, so my the actual date that we set was like June 2021, and I thought okay I'll stick to that that'll give more time for vaccines and for the numbers to fall and all this kind of 
you know, calculations that you think you're doing in your head. Right. Trying to rationalize. I mean, yeah, you're trying to figure out what the best thing to do is, but it's so such an unpredictable situation that you don't know what, it, what, what you know, and, and I think the real fear, you, you had a fear anyway, right? Oh, yeah. They, 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 they fire your immune system. You're coming back. There's all this risk of infection. You have to have all these precautions for like the first weeks and months after you return. Well, it's a great and distance this, for like, you from Canada to Russia. Yeah, it's it's two airplanes, it's two airports, it's, you know, a lot of people in between. And, and, and so, and now there's this, like deadly virus. Thanks, as always, for listening to the HSCT Warriors podcast. We've broken this interview up into two parts, so come back next week to hear the rest. Hope you'll join us. Be sure to visit hsctwarriorspodcast.org, where you can find notes from today's episode, submit ideas or feedback, and connect with resources and the HSCT Warriors Incorporated nonprofit. As always, special thanks to musical genius Billy Allitzhauser for sharing his superpowers to create the soundtrack, edit, and produce the audio to make this podcast possible. You can find us both when you subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you find podcasts. It has been amazing to connect with warriors worldwide, and we would love to hear from you about how the podcast has helped your journey with autoimmune disease. Take a moment to connect with us on Instagram or share this episode with someone you know that would enjoy listening. In the meantime, we hope you'll tune in next Wednesday for another episode highlighting another HSCT warrior. Until then, be a snowflake and embrace your superpowers. Be kind, be well. John Stansberry Koenig and the producers disclaim medical influence and responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. If you think you have a medical problem, please contact a licensed physician and take good care.